How to write a novel, week four, day two. <laughs> so I'm down on the slick, slidey beach, man. It's because, uh, yeah, I had these big, cool boots. They got a leak in them, so I, I bought just a pair of, like, these shoes at Walmart were like $9, just some clearance shoes. And they're actually pretty great shoes. And at $9, fuck it, man. I mean, I've already gotten my money's worth. The fact that they've lasted for two months but they have no treads, and I almost fell twice on my way down the snowy hill to get to this beach. Gotta be careful. Gotta be careful, I'm gonna fall, gonna slip. So, uh, awesome, awesome ass writing day today, where I'm at the start of a new chapter, and uh, as I said yesterday, I had nothing, just literally nothing for this, uh, this chapter. I've just got a slush folder with, you know, a few dozen miscellaneous ideas split into generalized categories. But that's what's so cool, is uh, that idea of the blank page, of staring down the blank page. I never have that, because I've got these notes, right? That's why I think it is very important to gather notes before starting a story, so that you have something to fall back on. So you have a... Uh, an emergency net so you won't get thrown off of this bucking bronco that is long sustained effort toward a single goal and like last chapter I, I wrangled up a bunch I don't know like a dozen different ideas maybe and in the end I think I used three of them and just put the rest back into the general pile I mostly just as I was writing just found my own shit because there is a, a very different feeling about, like, you can only pre-plan so much. Because I just find, like, my mind is in a different state. It's in a different uh, gear when I'm actually sitting there writing. Like, when you're at that, that icebreaker point, that fountainhead, if you will, where the fucking rubber meets the road where the cow catcher catches the cow that's where ideas come up and the story really builds and flows in a way that it just can't when you're just uh, developing notes and writing an outline in the abstract so I think it is very important kind of like a I mean I guess it's the two sort of archetypes of writers are the pre-planner and the no planner where I really think uh, both. You need to be prepared for both. Like I've got these notes as a fallback so that I never have that blank page, mental block, writer's block situation. But at the same time, it's hard to say how useful the notes really are. As I get deeper and deeper into this story, they're less and less relevant, or the scope of the notes is revealing itself to be much more narrow than I knew it was, or that I could have known that they were. The actual story and its actual events and the actual places that it's going, just going to places that my notes could not have foreseen. So like the real writing, the really good writing, the really surprising cool writing, still comes by the seat of my pants, but I have the notes if I need them. But I really feel like this is a good thing, it's like to have both. So in this case, today, 
got up, did some laundry, yada yada. And I was gonna leave the house and jump onto the train and go off to some other neighborhood, but I was just kind of feeling that little feeling in my gut of like, instead of getting on the train and going off to some far-flung neighborhood and doing writing either on the way or when I get there, because that's what I usually do, I was like, you know what, let me just stop at this coffee shop that's two blocks from where I'm staying, that's right before the train. Fuck it, let's just jump right on this today, because I'm just feeling like I would like to. So I got my, my little Americano, which they uncharmingly call a Canadiano at Waves Coffee, which I don't, I don't care for. <laughs> it's a fucking Americano, just call it an Americano, you Canadian cuntbags. But I got my coffee, sat down, and I've got the blank chapter, just the blank chapter, where all it says is 14 at the top, because it's chapter 14, and at the bottom I have a little glossary of terms because this is a sci-fi story and I have just occasional weird names for things try not to go overboard with that but just anything that I might need to refer to it's a real pain to dig back through my old writing and find previous references to make sure that I'm spelling it right most of them are just Latin words but I don't know Latin so I don't remember what these fucking terms are so I've got like a dozen terms at the bottom so that's it, essentially the blank page conundrum. But I've got all these notes. So I start looking through my notes. I just start at the top. My very first category of notes is just a generalized group of notes about uh, culture shock and uh, listlessness and trying to deal with uh, the mental anguish of being a displaced war orphan, basically. <laughs> which is a, I guess, kind of a heavy concept, but, but that's what I started with. There's like 18 little items still in that folder that I haven't used yet. And I'm reading them and I'm like, not only am I like, these aren't gonna work, I'm thinking like, these are never gonna work. There's a lot of stuff in here that really was based on a previous assumption of how this story was gonna go or how this story was gonna feel where my presumed tone when I was making notes over the past year has just turned out not to be the case. Things have shifted. Priorities have changed. The uh, good guy versus bad guy paradigm is way fuzzier than it is in my notes. So I'm reading these things and I'm like, you know, uh, these aren't going to be handy and are probably never going to be handy. I'll leave them in here, but I'm I'm getting close to just moving these things to another folder called, you know, like outtakes. Unusable. Not gonna be useful folder. I won't delete them because, uh, I think it's always good to keep these things just in case. So you can look back over them once in a while and make sure that they don't have a place. Even, uh, when I'm done the first draft of this book and I move on to the second draft, I'm still gonna keep this version like these are just the version ones and then I'll make version two version three and whatever and I just want to keep the old versions because even if I never go back and look at them I feel like that takes a lot of mental sort of stress off if you don't delete stuff like you never need to worry about erasing something or radically altering something if you know the old version is still there and even if I never go back and look at those old versions ever again in my life they're there if I do need them, if I do need to go back. And it's just, uh, it takes off that kind of 
pressure. It, it like makes me feel more comfortable with making changes and alterations and trying stuff when I know I can always just go back to the old one if I have to. And man, so much of productive writing and successful writing is just tricking yourself. Like it's not hard to trick yourself in a lot of ways. It's not hard to calm your mind and come up with little techniques to not make you fear writing and to not make you fear failure. <laughs> the same way that it is also easy to fall off and easy to rationalize and come up with excuses to stop writing. I really just think like it's such a uh, important truth to face that human beings are very, very weak, <laughs> very malleable, very pliable in all ways, physically and mentally. So it's very important to uh, not give your terrified primal brain a reason to freak out. You know, <laughs> very important to keep things comfy. But anyway, so I'm looking through these notes. And I'm three or four notes in, and I'm just kind of reading them and thinking how they're not applicable. And my mind, though, is elsewhere. My mind is not focusing on these things. And I just start having this little, this little dreamy vision over in the corner of my mind of, like, just letting my subconscious kind of pull something together. So this is, I mean, it's essentially the same as staring down the blank page but without actually staring down the blank page. Like, I think even just that feeling of inaction, of just sitting there looking at a page, is deadly. It just is not a feeling of progress, where even if I'm just flipping through these folders and going through these little text files that are just whatever random ideas, just that I'm moving, that I'm mechanically doing something, I think really helps. It just really keeps your mind... It's like I'm... I am working right now. I'm writing. I'm working on my book. I'm not just sitting here. <laughs> and then while I'm doing this mechanical duty that may pay off or may not, my subconscious is doing the real work, is actually coming up with something. So I started thinking like, okay, the character could be in the church, which is like it's an exhibit of what a church was like on her home planet, and she sleeps there and hangs out there a lot because it's the only example of her culture that's available to her on this space station. So she could be there, and uh, the guy that's like her HR rep, her liaison, could come in and just be like, hey, am I bugging you? Are you busy? And she could make some crack about like, oh, am I busy? Are you kidding? How could I even be busy? What can I do in this place? You know, I'm in like a fucking glass jar in your hermetically sealed fucking space station. And already that's deep enough in that it's like, okay, I gotta stop looking through these notes. I just gotta start jotting that down. Like I'm deep enough in now that it's like, okay, that's the story. That's what's happening. So I wrote a mess of stuff, all just quick point form, not worrying about punctuation and capitalization, or if I accidentally double-spaced a word, like, who cares? Just blah, 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 just barf it out. And it went so well of just, like... So I've got the guy introducing himself in this kind of meek way of, like, okay, I want to make sure I'm not bugging you, and then he's like, look, I don't necessarily know what's considered offensive to you or what will set you off, so, you know, please let me know if I'm overstepping my bounds or whatever just kind of being like annoyingly ingratiating and she's like yeah 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 well you fucking just if you got to say something just say it so then from there I'm like all right well here we are we're set up this guy can say anything now because he's really couched it in like I know this might bother you so are you ready 
So I'm like, all right, so what can we do? Let's just jump right to it. No more fucking random ass conversations about nothing. Let's really get to it. What does this guy really want to know? And what he wants to know is, so hey, your whole planet exploded. Everyone's fucking dead. There's like five of your species on this space station. And you are amongst the last left. So what the fuck happened? How come you're not dead? How did you survive? Tell me that story. And that's one of those things that I didn't have a clear idea of in my notes or before I started the story, because it just seemed like one of those things that, that I just wasn't able to, like, to, to try to put my focus on that before starting the story. I could just, I just knew it wasn't gonna go anywhere. And I guess I knew that kind of just subconsciously by the fact that just no thoughts came to me, no ideas. If I had had an idea about it six months ago, I would have jotted it down, but I just never did. And it's like, yeah, well, that's okay, though, because that's not really what the story is about. The story is about the fallout of that event. That's what set up the situation. How it actually happened doesn't actually matter. Maybe if I ever make a sequel to this book, it might matter. But it's like I said back in one of the early shows, it's like if, if you wrote a book about someone who was, you know, in London during the bombings and their house got bombed. The story's only going to be about overcoming those circumstances. It's not going to be about traveling to Germany and tracking down Hitler and killing him, you know? And that's a huge problem, I find, with sci-fi and fantasy. Is in sci-fi and fantasy, that would be the story. It's like, well, we got to go to the Xenon dimension and we got to find Emperor Drakhaven and we must kill him. And it's like, Fuck you, man. <laughs> Who are you? Why do you think you're capable of that? It's just completely unrelatable. The scale is completely off. So I only want to write a story about the direct outcome of living through a big tragedy. So I didn't have any idea why she survived. And it's like, well, I'll just come up with it as I go. That's just a case where I just got to be confident in myself trust in myself to have some ingenuity in the moment to come up with something and who knows like I was like maybe I'll get to there and that will bottleneck me bad for a day or two but that's when I'll just drop everything else and I'll dedicate my whole stupid life for a couple of days to figuring this out and that's fine I'll come to that bridge when I get there you know cross that bridge when we get to it I believe is the saying oh, it's starting to rain on me that's nice in a way Apparently this nightmare snow is finally over, because now it's raining. Oh, this could be bad. I'm far away from anything. I guess if it gets real bad, there's like a uh, big water pipe near me. You can hear the water. That uh, the bottom is rusted out, so I could actually go hide under that if I had to, <laughs> if it really starts to rain. So as I'm writing today, it just came to me so well and came out so easy where I've got this previous chapter that I really was unsure about. It's about uh, my main character just thinking back to this aunt of hers and the aunt basically trying to warn her about alien species and like when you meet them you're not going to like them. Like trying to warn her about the situation she's in now. That if you ever get stuck having to conform it's not going to go well because we are space rhino people. 
we don't get along with others and additionally we are the best <laughs> like we just rule everyone else is an idiot not an open-minded species and i'm like that's not a very good chapter i'll probably delete that later but you know again i'll worry about that later i'll just leave it for now so as i'm writing this chapter that idea came back to me of that idea of the xenophobic aunt and this time it came out way better, fleshed out way more, makes way more sense. It's a way better take on the situation. So I'll have to go back and rewrite that old chapter, but again, I'll do that next time. I made a little note. I just went back to that chapter, made a note and said, hey, chapter seven. Chapter 14 contradicts you and is way better. So you need to be fixed. And I'll worry about that on draft two. But now I've got it that basically this aunt came up with a bunch of shit of like, that this, because there's a lot of talk about this girl's aunt and her grandfather, no talk of parents at all. So I just came up with this time, he's like, how come you never talk about your parents? And she's like, hey, we don't do that, because parents, parents are basically too close to the kid. They can't act right. They like take a sense of ownership over their kids. Like they feel like they can cross boundaries with their kids that they would never cross with anyone else. And this is a violent, war-like society where, like, if you really don't get along with someone and you get in a big fight with them and you fucking cut their arm off, you might not get in trouble. <laughs> That's normal dealing with your, your neighbor, you know? So when you take that idea and connect it to a kid, like, if you've got a kid who's much smaller than you and who's a little asshole because he hasn't learned how to be mature yet, and you feel like you can do whatever you want because it's your kid, just the level of violence is just too much, too damaging. Things happen, like, you know, if you, if you break the arm of a little kid, that's way too much, even for these people. And they just kind of realized over the generations that your parent might do this to you, but your grandfather and your aunt probably won't, because you're not their kid. They can have a more, more of a sense of distance, more of a sense of objectivity about you. Like, you know, they're more calm. Like the idea of parental closeness in this society with these rhino folk, that just doesn't really happen. The benefits are not great, whereas the potential damage of being left as a ward of your parents is way too much. So they just don't do it. It just isn't how it happens. I'm like, well, that's cool. I didn't know any of that yesterday. Came up with all that this morning. That's awesome. And additionally, I've got this aunt who is one of the few from her species that has left. She left for a couple of years, went around, saw a bunch of places in the fucking, in the galaxy, in the universe. Just in the galaxy, I guess, right? Universe is too big. <laughs> but uh, yeah, she saw other species and she learned about other cultures and she hates them all. She doesn't like any of them. She thinks that her own species really is the best, that her own culture really is the best. And she's trying to impart this to her niece, to our protagonist. And it's like, she's basically saying like, I know you don't want to go on one of these sojourns that I went on. I know you don't want to leave for two years. I, I know you're not going to like it, but I think it's important that you do this because you're never going to understand who you are or what you are or the value of what you have until you can reflect it against these other cultures. Basically, like, because they they're just like hard-headed, crazy rhino creatures. So she's like, look, 
I'm xenophobic as fuck, and this trip is gonna make you xenophobic as fuck, but you should be. You should know how important your own culture is and protecting your culture, and you'll never feel it with the fire you need unless you do this, unless you go off and do this, unless you go see the world, you know? So that's arguably kind of terrible, you know, kind of fucked up. It's pretty weird fucking reasoning. But again, these are aliens. I'm really no interest in writing aliens that are just people. What the fuck's the point of that, you know? If you can't really make your alien species a little fucking off the wall. So at the same time, I kind of want this like, you know, this sort of distressing idea almost of just like, like that your aunt is sending you on a hate tour. It's kind of forcing your hand of like, I, I don't know, you don't want to do this, but I need you to go do this because I need you to be a zealot for me. I need you to learn to hate. <laughs> There's the song of the day, by the way, I just, just decided it. But then also the idea came up of like, okay, so why though? Why did you agree? Why did you agree to go on this, this space tour just because your aunt wanted you to? seems like you wouldn't. Seems like, if anything, you would just like fight her in order to not go. This is what the Nadarian guy from the space station, you know, his, his take on their species is like, it still seems weird that you capitulated. Like, why would you do this just because she wanted you to? So that brings up the idea that, uh, that Surratt's aunt basically expects big things of her. Just like, you know, I see something in you. I see something in you that you could be like a great leader of our people. You could really be like, you're just different. Ever since you were a kid, you're just, you stand out. Like if you met Conan when he was a kid, Conan the Barbarian, I mean, I'm sure you could tell that that kid was Conan, you know? It's like, that, that kid's different. That kid's gonna cut some heads off, man. Some lamentations of the women. That's, that's gonna be crazy. So the idea that the aunt felt that for Surratt, our main character. Like, you could really be something. You could really stand out. Even amongst these people that are all about butting heads and all about going their own way, you're like another level. Like, you'll just, you are, you, I, I can feel that you will, you'll not stop. You know, you will destroy yourself if you have to, to get things to be the way that you want. It's like, uh, man, there's a quote. I can't remember who it was by, but it's that, I can't even remember the quote, <laughs> but it's, it's just that, you know, most people, reasonable people, conform to reality. Unreasonable people expect reality to conform to them. So on the surface, that sounds crazy. You don't want to be that way, but then you realize everyone who's ever changed the world is unreasonable. They're like, this is not going to happen. This world needs to change. And the aunt basically is like, you could be, I know you could be this type of person, you know, like... Either you will make change or you will die trying because you're just, you're extra crazy. <laughs> and, and basically, so that's what she wants to engender in her niece is we got to temper this deal. You know, you're already crazy, but you're not direct. You don't have enough direction. <laughs> we, you know, we need to make you crazy in the right direction. We need to show you what you need, what you should hate, what you should fear what you should fight against and all you got to do literally all you got to do is go meet these other alien species and hang out with them and you'll understand it all <laughs> so so that's why Surratt agreed to this is just like 
The fact that somebody is putting this kind of faith in her, even though it is crazy fucked up barbarian faith, she's like, all right, for you, I'll do this. This is insane and I don't want to do it, but I'll do it. And hence, she was one of the few, because these people, these, uh, these rhino aliens, they just don't leave their home planet. They don't want to leave. They don't see a reason to leave. So at any given time, not very many of them are not on the planet, but Surat was one. She was not on the planet while it got blown up. So I'm like, this is a, so great. God damn, come up with so much good shit today. It's fucking great. And at the same time, then the next logical question is like, okay, you asked me what you wanted to ask. Now, the thing I want to ask more than anything is, what happened? Like, what information do you have about why my planet blew up? What the fuck happened? And that's another thing that I had no idea about, because again, the specifics aren't what the story is about, but it's like something that is like, that one always weighed on me, because it's like, I'm gonna have to explain this eventually, and it's gonna have to be good. You know, it's gotta be something. Because again, if there's ever like a sequel to this book, then this is going to have to be dealt with. This is, but for this book, not necessarily important, but it's got to be good. And I just, that was one that I'm like, man, when's it going to click? When's the idea going to click? And over the whole year of just like gathering notes, never clicked. I never had an idea. And then I started writing the book and I never, it never clicked. I never had an idea. And just before I started this podcast, you know, about a month ago, Finally, it kind of clicked, and uh, it's where a lot of the ideas for this story came from. I've mentioned it before, but this game, Star Control 2, that came out in the early 90s, might be my favorite video game. Gun to my head, it's probably, it's my favorite. Definitely my favorite, like, PC game. And it's, uh, it's a comedy game. It's super hilarious. It's very funny. But my take on it is very much not that. Like, the, the idea of rhino people came from Star Control 2, but in Star Control 2, you know, they're cigar chomping, they're absurd... But the idea for the villain, I'm also going to take from Star Control 2, because this is something I actually didn't pick up on playing Star Control 2. It was only reading about it later, reading interviews, reading through the wiki and stuff. But this was something I came across a few years ago that really gripped my mind. It's so excellent and just such a great example of how much depth there is in Star Control 2 and how much is going on there. Where there's these really silly aliens named the Ores that look like fish, and their translator doesn't work right, so they just say super weird, dumb shit that hardly makes sense, and they seem really goofy. But you can kind of piece together a little bit from what they're saying, like they're talking about... Specifically, there's this one species of alien from Star Control 1 that's gone, and in their section of space is now the ores. And if you ask them about this, what happened to these guys, if you ask them too many times, the ores get mad and they fucking will never talk to you again. They just fight you. And it's like that's the, uh, the delicate balance of alien fucking uh, diplomacy. They're just so neat in both those senses that like once it's fighting time, it's fighting time forever. And you can barely understand them the whole time. But they start saying like this creepy stuff about like how they can smell you, you know, or they can smell different races. And you're from, like, the middle, middle space or something. I can't remember what they call it. They like, though, they like the area of space that you're from. And then there's another species of, like, the greys. They're from, like, the upper space. Where these guys, the ores, are from the bottom. They're from below. 
and you can kind of piece together talking to the other alien species specifically the like the standard gray type aliens and you learn that these guys the ores are from a different dimension basically and their their dimension is like who knows like it's it's an hp lovecraft type horror because you know so little it's kind of i mean it's like hell the hell dimension from event horizon maybe maybe not it's not even explained it's just all we know is it's different it's not where we're from but they like where we're from better they want to come here they want to have what we have but because we're on these different wavelengths like they're from a different parallel reality to us usually they can't see us or as they say it smell they can't smell you but when they do see you when they get that ability to smell you and they are aware of you then they can interact with you and then you die <laughs> you're fucking dead that's what happened to this other species is like they were doing experiments and trying to break through to this other reality and the thing on the other side of the reality fucking wiped them out they're extinct now they are gone so these silly funny weird fish creatures are really that's just like that's our weird perception of them like when they come from their reality to our reality they just look weird and different and like we just can't comprehend what they even are and what they are isn't even at all what they seem like what they are they're basically like the fingers of this one fucked up horrifying entity from beyond that wants in you know it wants to come into our space and if we all have to go then we all have to go but it's all so told like so indistinctly and indirectly and it's like when you consider it it's fucking really scary and that's so extra cool because on the surface it's so silly that's the kind of place where i do feel like that's a skill as a writer that maybe someday i'll have but i don't have right now where my story is pretty much straight up drama i really respect when people can integrate comedy i really think that is like the best way to go but it's such a delicate balance that i don't i don't want to try it really like some parts of this story hopefully are like a little witty but they're not like haha funny because that's just so hard to do and i don't feel like i'm ready to try to crack that nut but i'm like you know what so star control i mean this game is fucking really old <laughs> and this is such an obscure aspect of it that unless you're digging into fucking wiki pages and reading interviews with the two guys that created star control you're never going to know any of this and uh you know every idea comes from somewhere so basically i'm going to steal that concept but even that i was like okay you know what that's a cool idea but i still don't know where i'm going to go with that and i didn't know till today till i'm writing and uh basically it's going to be that as different as all these alien cultures are and is completely unable to integrate as they are one thing that this dude who's a it's like a xeno anthropologist ethnographer whatever the one thing he's noticed about basically every species in the galaxy is they all have a similar fairy tale there's this one fairy tale idea that's basically the ores from star control like this thing that if it sees you if it 
becomes aware of you, it can kill you. And the only way you can be safe is to stay ignorant. As long as you don't know about it, it won't know about you. But when you do know, you're in danger. They all have this same fairy tale. So he's going to say like, all right, we don't know a ton about what happened to your planet, but bear with me. You know this one story? We call it this, but you call it that. That thing's real. That's real. <laughs> That's not a fairy tale. That really happens. There is something out there that if it gets a beat on you, you're fucking dead. But it's borderline impossible to understand. And maybe it's better not to understand it at all. Because if you don't know, you're safe. If you do know, you could be in Lovecraftian hell time, <laughs> you know? And that's, uh, that's kind of as far as I got, because again, I'm just doing this note form. Tomorrow when I flesh out this into real dialogue, I'm sure I'll come up with more and like flesh that idea out more. And she's just kind of like, what are you, are you kidding? You're telling me that my planet has been destroyed because of a fucking Bloody Mary? You know, a fucking dumb fairy tale thing? What the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> are you kidding? I heard actually that the Star Control guys are talking about making a Star Control 3. It's a weird case where they made Star Control 2 a long time ago. And then they were like, you know what? When, uh, when we have a lull in the schedule, we'll make Star Control 3. But then they, they've just uh, run this extremely successful video game company that's just been making games for the last 25 years and has never failed and is just doing great and there just hence was never time for Star Control 3. So some other team made Star Control 3. I never played it, but uh, it's not canon. People say it's not that great. Maybe I'll play it someday. Uh, there's a team right now working on a Star Control prequel, but again, it's not them. They just bought the rights. But I heard these guys might make a real Star Control 3. They're talking about it. That would be cool. Anyway, I highly recommend Star Control. But yeah, so, so basically though, things went real good today. And what I think is amazing is, I mean, that whole thing probably took an hour. A great day, a better day than I could have ever hoped for yesterday. And yet I still have that feeling of like, okay, I did that work, but is that really enough work for one day? Shouldn't I just go across town to a different coffee shop and try to keep working some more? And yeah, I'm like, I'm getting more and more comfortable with it, but it really is like that, just like, it feels so counterintuitive to go against my society, <laughs> even though I'm writing this crazy sci-fi book that that's all that it's about is uh, cultures and uh, breaking apart from them, denying them or questioning them. But our, yeah, our nine to five mindset of like, here's how much work you should do each day to, to not feel guilty about yourself. <laughs> But even though, again, like yesterday I was saying, if I had buckled down and tried to write this chapter yesterday, I wouldn't have had these results. I wouldn't have had all these great stuff that I came up with. Same thing would happen today. If I go after this, go try to write some more, it's not going to be as good as if I just wait till tomorrow. And at the same time, this way, I'm not excited to go do more work today, to go drudge it out. But I'm very excited tomorrow to sleep on it, have a fresh eyes, very excited to get back to it tomorrow. And ultimately, I mean, what, what greater gift could you give yourself than to be excited for tomorrow, <laughs> you know? Like that really is, that's a rare gift. Like all the years I was in junior high and high school, I was never excited for tomorrow, not once. You know, the weekend was okay, but just, it was just awful. 
And uh, I mean, there's a lot, a lot of periods in my life where it's like I'm not excited for tomorrow. I think a lot of people are not particularly excited for tomorrow. If you can like walk around with the idea that you can't wait for tomorrow, that's great, man. That's like a little kid feeling. That's like it's my birthday tomorrow or Christmas is coming up. Like that's something that as an adult you don't necessarily feel. And that I can give myself that feeling by not pushing myself too hard, by not forcing myself to write, by writing at a slow pace, I get better writing. And I mean, that really is the looking forward to tomorrow. Honestly, like there's no better gift than that. And like with writing, you know, it is, it's supposed to be fun. It's like, you've got to do the work and you've got to have your nose to the grindstone, but intelligently, you know, like it still needs to be fun. Like, you know, fucking Shakespeare and Mark Twain. Okay, so they changed the world. Everyone knows who they are. They're still fucking dead. <laughs> you know? Like, I have no idea what their processes were like or what their lives were like, but I hope they enjoyed it. Because if they didn't, then what the fuck was the point of that, you know? It's, there's no point to having a book that everybody remembers if you didn't have fun making it and if you didn't have a good life. If you weren't excited for tomorrow, who gives a shit? You could have written, you could write the Bible version too, you know, the new world changing whatever. If it's not fun for you, just don't do it. Don't do it, man. <laughs> you don't know the world anything. Fuck them. That's all byproduct. That's all a side thing. And I guess that's what I'm, I'm really realizing is like, I went from realizing that smaller amounts of work each day are more sustainable and more effective to trying to convince myself that that was okay, trying to remind myself that that was okay. Now I've hit the point where I'm starting to realize that it's actually hard to do. Like the smaller amount of work each day is more effective, is more idea filled, is more fun. But it is hard because we're so wired in North America to think we're supposed to be working all day. And like this, uh, this Tim Ferriss book I've been reading, The 4-Hour Workweek, like just, he just brings up stuff that it is, it's so absurd on the face of it, of like the 9 to 5. What are the chances that every job in every industry requires 9 to 5 each day to get all your work done? What are the chances that in all these disparate lives doing disparate things, that it all just happens to take eight hours every day. Like, it, it absolutely doesn't. It makes no sense. And he's talking a lot in this book about how much more productive he became when he put limits on himself. Like, take Friday off, take Monday off, leave at 4 p.m. Now you have less time to get things done, so you just won't fuck around as much. You've got to really prioritize what's important and then actually do it. Not spend all day dicking around with emails and doing stupid shit that doesn't matter. And it's like so counterintuitive, but so obvious once someone says it. It's just like, less is more. You're just working to feel like you're working. <laughs> you know? Like, what are you actually getting done? You're just doing what everyone before you did, so you'll feel comfortable that you fit in. But it's hard not to. It's hard not to. And one thing, like, I was thinking of with, like, writing for an hour a day, because, like, when you're in it, like, I know how fertile that hour at that coffee shop was. I know how much good shit I got out of it. I know how excellent that was and how much better it'll be to wait till tomorrow instead of trying to repeat that today. But what it makes me think of is meditation. Like the idea that doing things that are easy is actually hard. Deceptively so. 
Meditation is such a clear example and such a strong example because it sounds so easy if you've never tried it. Like, hey, just sit down. Just sit there for 20 minutes each day with your eyes closed. That's all. Just sit there. Close your eyes. It's literally the easiest thing. Literally. There is nothing conceivably easier than that except lying down, I guess, to go to sleep. Because that's all it is. You're just doing the same thing except sitting up. Just sit there. Just sit there and close your eyes. But it is so hard to do. It is so fucking hard to do. And I can prove that it's hard to do because you don't do it. Whoever you are, you don't do it. Nobody fucking does it. It's super hard to do. You're like a goddamn superhero if you can do that. Every day. I'm just going to sit there and meditate every day? And it's such a great example of how hard work is not turning a big crank. Hard work is not pushing a boulder. Hard work is a much more elusive and wily thing. Because maintaining, in my case, maintaining a work habit that will carry me through to complete an entire novel, that's the hard thing. And part of that is to not kill myself each day, to relax, to accept that one good hour of work is, is the thing. That's what I am aiming for. That's what I should be doing. But every day I gotta fucking diffuse the idea that I should just now, I'm done with that for today. That's enough. I can go do something else. I can write something else. I can work on a different project. But that project is done for today. And yeah, it's that, that counterintuitive backward thing. And it's amazing how tough that kind of thing can be. And meditation in particular, I think, is just a really interesting example because I think about it like quite a bit where I mean it was a few years back now 2014 I believe but that was the last time I had like a real calamitous like holy fuck midlife crisis breakdown time of like this is just crazy how much things are sucking how much things are not working how much I'm moving in the wrong direction how unhappy I am and it's funny that those are the kind of things that now in hindsight you know I think back to it kind of fondly sometimes because that's when I got so big into, like, let's, okay, let's search for an answer. Let's listen to self-help people. Let's try out all this different stuff. That's when I got into exercise. And even though it sucked at the time, it is like, it's a nice feeling now because I see all the seeds of things that I learned back then that are still part of my life, that are still helpful. And it's like, man, I'm glad I learned all that shit. But one of the things was meditation. And I never quite did meditation the stereotypical way people do it. That idea of sitting there and trying to calm your mind, to quiet your thoughts, to repeat mantras, and to try not to think. Or then, like, you just see your thoughts, but you're not of your thoughts, you're just observing them. Like, I don't know, I never got to that point. Maybe that's cool, whatever. That just never felt applicable, or I just didn't know what the fuck that was all about. That sounds pretentious and dumb. <laughs> Literally all I did is I got this thing, it's called binaural beats, but I don't know if they actually work. They're supposed to be just this thing you listen to that uh, calms your brain waves or some bullshit, I don't know. But what was important about it is it was a 20 minute MP3, 20 or so minutes of rainfall. And supposedly behind it are these, these waves that calm you. But again, who cares if that works or not? That doesn't even matter. It was just that it was 20 minutes, it was rain noise, so it was a nice way for me to know that 20 minutes was up in an unobtrusive way, not with an alarm or something. 
So I would just sit there, listening to the rain sound, with like a sleep mask on, and just sit there for 20 minutes every day. But I would let my mind race. I wouldn't try to stop it at all. I would just sit calmly, but just let my mind go crazy. Let it go wherever it wanted. And it's just like, like running through a field, just like manic, crazy. Remember this time in life? Remember that time? Just go through all your memories. Go through all your thoughts. Just whatever's going to happen, let it happen. Just brrrrow. And eventually it would tend to steady in on specific times. And it's like, just spend a little time really thinking about, like, oh, remember that place where I was? Remember how that felt? And I did it every day, and I loved it. I loved it. But I don't do it anymore. I haven't done it in a long time, and I still think about it sometimes, but I don't do it. Like, as a casual thing, I can't do it. <laughs> you know, I could only do it when I had to do it, when I was going to just fucking hate my whole life unless I did some self-maintenance then I would do it, and it always helped, and it was always better. And like, if I fucking did the 20 minutes of meditation and then some fucking push-ups, I was like 100% better that day. Not that I was 100% cured, I just mean I was double as good as I would have been. But without that pressure now, without that need to do it, I just don't do it. Even though I loved it, and even though it's literally the easiest thing in the world. Just put in the headphones, sit down, close my eyes. Maybe now that I'm talking about it, maybe when I edit this podcast, like maybe this will be a little push. But I'm gonna, if I'm gonna get back into meditation, I've gotta be more serious about it. Like I've gotta decide, like am I gonna do this? See, that's the problem is like, can't do it before bed because I'll just fall asleep. You know, it's the wrong time. Can't do it when I wake up because I've always gotta pee. Got a small bladder. When I wake up, I gotta pee. And then I'm already up, and it's just, you know, then the day just starts happening. And there's just something in me that just doesn't want to do it. It's just hard to do, and it's so crazy to think of. And it doesn't seem hard until you try it. But man, I guarantee anyone listening to this, you can't do it. You don't do it. And even if you do do it for a while, you won't stick with it. It's so fucking hard to do. And that's where I'm getting to with writing now. It's like the small amount of work each day is working so well. But to accept that and to be satisfied with the hour or so that I work each day on this book is so hard to do, you know? Like today I should have been over the goddamn moon with this thing that I wrote and how well it went and how well it's setting things up for tomorrow and for all week and for the whole book. It's setting up tons of great shit. But then I went and got on the SkyTrain and I'm, you know, two stops away and I'm already thinking like, should I go find another coffee shop? What should I, should I work on this more? Should I be fleshing it out? Like I wasn't even happy about what I did. I was just anxious that I wasn't doing more. <laughs> it's just like fucking shit. Jesus. Like I really, I may not have the wherewithal to get back into meditation because I, I know of myself, I only have enough energy in my life for one big main project. And this is it. This book is it. If I threw the book away and decided my whole life's going to be based on meditation, I could do it then. 
but I can only do one thing. <laughs> you know, if I'm gonna do one thing every day and never miss it, I got one of those in me. That's all. And the book is it. So meditation is gonna stay on the back burner, but because the book is involved in learning how to work daily, learning how to accept the truth about what's really productive and what's really useful and what's really going to get me to the finish line and recording this podcast and just putting all of my thoughts into this book and the process of this book, I do think I can learn to accept and be happy and confident and feel calm about the fact that I'm not working all that much each day on the book. But it's hard. Like, it sounds easy, but it's not. It sounds easy, but it's impossible. <laughs> it's impossible, but I'm going to learn how to do it. I'm going to learn. I'm going to fucking just keep bearing down on this and thinking about it and working with it every day because this is going to be the technique forever. This is never going to stop. I'm going to work a little bit every day till I fucking die. And I'm going to finish so many books, it's going to be ridiculous. But this is the way. This is the way is to just keep pushing small amounts gradually not to fall off not to lose not to let go of the fucking tiger's tail you know not to fling myself off the bull a little bit every day for the next 40 years is incredibly more productive than starts and stops and working on something for three weeks and then stopping working for two months and then stopping because even that, it just doesn't add up in the same way. Once you stop, once you break that line in your brain, once that mental connection to the story and to the work in question is broken, you can't get it back. If I took a break for a week and came back, it's just not going to be the same. All my momentum will be gone. My thoughts about this story will be different. It's just not going to work. All right, well, anyway, that's enough goddamn rambling. <laughs> I hope if you're one of the very, very rare few that's listening to this now, I hope you enjoyed that. Much more likely, you'll be here in the far-flung future when uh, all this rambling has proven to pay off and I actually have some books out. Either way, whoever you are, whenever you are, I hope you enjoy listening to my ramblings. It's very helpful for me as well. It's very good to crystallize this stuff. To take all of my past, my first half of my life, where I just tried to be a writer and could never really pull it off, this is the turning point. This is where I become a writer. And this is where I'm never going to stop. Never going to stop, it. never going to stop. But that is not the song of the day. The song of the day is going to be Learn to Hate by Silverchair. And I was talking about our protagonist, Surat, and her crazy-ass aunt who wants her to learn to hate. It's like, well, obviously, that's the song. Can't go wrong with that. So here is Learn to Hate by Silverchair, and I will speak to you tomorrow.
Yeah.